Kongs, Archons. Welcome to Sanctimonious, a Keyforge podcast where two zealous Keyforge players discuss various topics regarding combat within the Crucible. Stand at attention and salute your hosts, Sir Jake and Sir Dan. Welcome back to another episode of Sanctimonious. This is Jake, and I'm joined by my loyal co-host once again, Dan Johnson, and a very special guest today, all the way from Israel, It is our good friend, Aurora. So thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, hey, hey. Back again. Well, I am absolutely thrilled uh, to have you on. I've already learned so much from you just in what you share in our discord words of wisdom and of course your incredible blog as well so i think this is just an awesome opportunity for uh listeners of this podcast to get some of that insight too and not to mention she double day two a uh fault tour krakow a cracking good performance as it were yeah that was uh better than i expected <laughs> <laughs> we were not surprised on this side with all the work and preparation and understanding of the game that you have. Uh, yeah, it wasn't a huge shock, but yeah, it's still, it's amazing to double day two. Although I guess maybe it's not that amazing. I don't know. Everybody in Sanctimonious apparently does it. <laughs> you, Alex. I mean, it's going to be Jake this up. Well, I guess they're not double day twoing. No doubles, only singles for this upcoming weekend that will be, have been this past weekend by the time you're hearing this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, an incredible performance to be sure. So the bulk of this episode I want to dedicate to uh, Aurora sharing uh, her perspective on the vault tour that took place in Krakow a couple weeks back. But before we dive into that, um, we just had a brand new rules update. And I think that is something that's on a lot of people's mind right now. So I think it might be wise to dedicate just a few minutes of this show uh, just for our first impressions of that rules update. And Aurora, of course, we'd love to have your perspective as well of course um i really enjoyed uh, the the changes they made generally speaking so happy to say so on uh, on the show uh i think that um well i, I wrote an article on my uh, blog about uh, the archimedes the initial archimedes ruling and i called the blog uh rules against intuition because it was quite unintuitive and i'm happy that they cleared it up in a way that makes the game uh, perceived by uh, people be the correct play to, way to play it in most cases, which is pretty much what they've done, uh, by uh, making it so uh, once a creature is marked for destruction, which is a new term in the new rules, uh, it cannot gain any new destroyed effects. Uh, to be resolved later. So only the ones that are present while marked for destruction will trigger, and that clears up the, the Archimedes nonsense with the board clear, archiving everything. Other than that, I think most of the rule changes were like pretty simple. There's, there's nothing like that shouts out that something amazing is going to change about the game. The game works how you expect it to. Uh, new players are probably playing the game the way it's meant to be played and nothing uh, out of the ordinary. They're not going to come to a chain bound event and you know, like, oh, wow, this I, I had no idea it worked that way in any of the new rules. So that's good. That's what we want from, uh, from the game. I totally agree. I was uh, a little bit concerned just with the timing of this coming uh, literally days before I, I head to the vault tour here in Collinsville. Um, at least at the time of recording. So I was kind of going through the changes, seeing you know what I thought, thinking that it could potentially cause a hiccup just in how well that event goes off. But reading through the changes, at least for me, quelled that fear quite a bit because I do believe, uh, as you said, Aurora, in most cases, these are just putting common sense ruling, how most people thought the game worked anyway, into uh, you know text in the rule book. So Overall, I think it's fantastic. Yep, totally agree. Uh, really quick, the only one that kind of still now sticks out as an outlier is the evasion sigil. So under the new ruling, any before fight abilities are declared by the active player. So as it currently kind of stands, you can make an interpretation that with evasion sigil out, if you have a creature with a before fight ability, say like a fire spitter 
or a Bingle Bang Bang. Um, you can order their your creatures before fight ability before the Evasion Sigil's fight ability. So Evasion Sigil takes a small hit. Um, I don't think it's it's not going to be really a huge huge thing, but it's just something to maybe be aware of that that is kind of an outlier right now under the new timing rules since active player chooses before fight abilities and evasion sigil is a before fight so um hopefully we might get some official clarification and that's why we put it out here on the airwaves so hopefully somebody hears it or enough people hear it that a little buzz is started and maybe we can get an official clarification because yeah i'm pretty sure like evasion sigil should always trigger first and then go to any other before fight abilities but with the timing chart and the way they have it listed out on the current timing chart it makes the case that you can declare your before fight abilities before that. It is an outlier in that it maybe isn't totally intuitive, but I think it's also exciting that more effects happening in the same window means more decisions for the player to make. Um, and, and how you want to sequence things, it gives you a little bit more control and I think a little bit makes the game just a tad bit more skill intensive. So for me, that's, that's a plus. Do we have any uh, final thoughts on the rule update, or should we move on to the main topic in the Krakow Vault Tour? I think we can move on. We are on to the main topic, where we'll be talking about the Vault Tour that took place in Krakow. This was a double vault tour meaning there was a sealed day and an archon day and as we mentioned at the top we are joined by aurora who managed to get top 16 at the event not once but twice so absolutely fantastic showing so i want to turn over this episode a lot uh to her to get her perspective on how that went down um but i don't know dan do you have any uh questions before we kind of get into that play-by-play action how do you win in real life? <laughs> you practice in real life. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't, man. It's so like having a new child is great. He's amazing. And I think the last time I played IRL Keyforge, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that sums it up nicely. <laughs> Yeah, it was at least over a month ago since I've actually, like, shuffled cards. Yeah. Well, like, you know, a bit of a bummer, but at the same time, you know, exciting life changes. Hard to get, hard to feel too bad for you uh, no. with all the wonderful things going on in your life. Life, life is good. It's just busy. <laughs> so let's go ahead and start with the sealed event since that is the one that happened first chronologically if that's all right with you. And yeah. the first kind of question I have for you is if you could walk us through uh, the deck selection process. That's always, I think, you know, very clearly one of the most important decisions you'll make all day. So how did that go for you? Okay, so um, for whoever has read my blog or hasn't, uh, I have a pretty by the numbers approach to how I pick a deck, uh, at least the initial uh, filtering. Sometimes I will filter one deck because of the numbers are poor and I will pick between the two remaining ones based on the actual cards in the deck. But the first thing that I do when I'm evaluating uh, a deck out of three is just go by the numbers. How many printed amber does it have? Uh, How many cards that produce any kind of amber control out of hand? Like if your opponent is checked, you can get them off check. And then I also look at the creature count and the distribution in the houses. Uh, so it's not only just 18 creatures, but also if it's 666, it's not as exciting as it's if it is if it's 1044. Uh, uh, because a large concentration of creatures in one house means that you can call it repeatedly in order to reap with a larger number of uh, creatures. Uh, I also have like a complete rundown of my thought process. Uh, in my my blog, um, but just like a quick rundown, I opened three decks. Decks the the first one uh, had shadows, mars, and untamed. Uh, I looked it over. It has 
some amber control but not enough and it doesn't have anything that made me exciting except the liga which is amazing especially in seal because if they can't deal with it and they can't play creatures then you're gonna win uh i move on to my second deck which was more exciting it had more amber control it had a ronnie wrist locks it also had shadows mars and this it has some uh, uh it has a bolt clear uh it has like um some uh, targeted removal, two pain reactions, uh, Gungoozers, stuff like that. And it looked like pretty good deck. Like this, if I took this deck uh, to the Vault 2, I believe I could make 5-1 as well. Um, but then I opened my third deck and it just kind of blew me away. Um, it had, had the numbers to support everything and just going over it quickly, it has... In Mars, three Collector Worms, two Resonators, which is just super powerful creatures and Amber Control. And in Sanctum, it has uh, two Sermaros and uh, and the Maruk the Mark, which is more Amber Control. And in the Untamed, it had two Dusk Witches, Teliga, which I love and mentioned earlier, and Amber Spine Mongrel. So I just looked at this deck and saw high quality of cards along with numbers that support it and that's why i picked it i didn't even have to think like it had it also had better numbers and it had better quality cards so i just went for that one excellent um we've since we've mentioned your blog a couple of times i should say now we'll be sure to link it in the notes uh of this podcast episode for anyone who does want to go check it out afterwards i highly recommend it i think we might mention it a few more times throughout this episode so Let's just uh, put that there now. And then one thing you said, just brought a question up. Do you have like a preferred number of creatures in a deck? Um, okay, so if the deck has um, lower than 16 creatures, like 15 or lower, I need the deck to have at least 14 printed amber to compensate for that. Because you need to be able to reap in order to win if you don't have printed amber. Uh, if you have low creature count and low printed amber, you're just not going to win. Because if you only have 10 printed amber and 14 creatures, then just doing the regular math of how many amber I need for my three keys, I'm going to have to reap uh, at least eight times during the game. And I only have 14 creatures. You can just kill them and I won't have anything to win with. So that's that's the balance. If I have higher than that, then I, I, I care less about uh, the printed amber. Of course, higher is better. But if I have like 17, 18 creatures, that makes me happy. Above that, like far above that, like around the 22, it starts to get questionable again. Because if you don't have uh, actions at all or artifacts, sometimes the deck is limited but i'll still rather pick a 22 creature deck than a 14-1 with no printed amber yeah that's interesting i i do agree i've uh kind of thought 18-19 generally for me has been the sweet spot and kind of the style i like to play but i know some people really prefer like really dent a lot of creatures in their deck uh so it's interesting to get your opinion on that i'm sure people listening at home uh, are interested as well uh, so let's move on to sort of highlights of the event. So you take that third deck in, you're feeling pretty good about it. Um, I know you've given, you've written more details about the event, but uh, maybe you can just give us sort of like the key takeaways uh, or any like pivotal moments in games that you'd care to share. Yeah. Okay. So uh, my day one, um, I noticed that my opponents misplayed a lot. Uh, and if it's a misplay that your opponent can notice, it's probably a critical one. Uh, I, I don't remember exact things, like aside from uh, one opponent that had a really big board because he managed to uh, reap with a Sutterkin and just build a huge board. And uh, they were really busy killing my stuff when they could just be reaping. Th that's an example of a, a, a bad play 
on my opponent's part that allowed me to win the game. If they would have been reaping, I had no opportunity to come back with that from that. During most of the most of the games, I I noticed no, at least the first four, no, actually the entire five games, I noticed my opponents making those misplays, and I believe. Uh, in in my memory, and I remember my, myself playing. I don't recall myself like making any significant misplays. Like I, you know, after I finish my turn, I go, "Oh, I shouldn't have done that." Um, the biggest misplay that I played against is um, when I played my my game five. Uh, I set up a board in a board situation in which I had uh, five amber on the board. Uh, a five amber, two two untamed creatures on the board, and a key charge that I held in my hand for the next turn. And I knew that if my opponent killed one of my untamed creatures, I would lose. And they didn't. They killed my other creatures. And I can sort of understand their choice to do so because I just played untamed, so I'm unlikely to pick it again. But being on my last key with five amber, two creatures out, that's exactly enough for key charge. That's something I expect a round five opponent to notice and play around. Uh, so, oh, and, and that was like extremely stressful. That the most stressful of the entire four days have been that game. I'm sitting there, my hound, my heart is pounding out of my chest, and I'm just. I know that just just it's up to my opponent. If they kill my untamed creatures, I lose. If they don't, I win. And that's those are the most stressful situations because it's not in my control and causes, you know, that generally anxiety thing. Yeah, I guess uh, you would hope that in round five, though, yeah, that somebody would be able to. I mean, you can't see the deck list beforehand, so you don't know if there's a key cheat. But knowing that um, Choda and Key Charge are both out of untamed. Yeah, that's like one of those calculations you always kind of have to keep in mind as an opponent, especially in sealed, if you don't know if they have it or not. And when you're trying to protect against that final third key, like you just need to go through that kind of progression and just kind of figure it out in your head whether or not they have, like, whether or not they can get to seven. Like, that's the thing that you need to be worried about. If they can get to seven the next turn and potentially have a key cheat, if you have any way to change that math or at least make it less likely that they can get to seven, you're most definitely better off doing that play. Yeah, and what I was going to say is interesting about that specific situation, too, is it's kind of one of those moments where, like, the out like factors outside of the game come in. Like, if you play your turn really quickly, uh, you know, they, your opponent may let, think it's less likely that you're holding on to other untamed cards rather than if you, like, are still taking some time looking at your hand afterwards. Or even like your body language could really reveal something about whether or not you're holding that key sheet. So uh, I think that like you know maybe there's some of that factor going on in, in the way that your body language presented to your opponent. Uh, perhaps they thought they picked up on something along those lines. Uh, possibly I don't know. I uh, my significant other was around, and like I uh, I told her before the game that to keep a certain distance uh, to not disrupt my focus. But at that moment, I was so stressed that I, I just pulled her over and she put her hand around me. And I just I just needed that in order to like feel like I'm okay in that situation. Like about the speed of playing, I think that uh, in, a, in a round five where both players can win and get into day two, you play slowly. You make sure that you're playing right. Uh, I don't think... I don't think anybody plays really fast in that stage, especially in sealed where you're not exactly sure you're not familiar with your deck. Great moment for sure. And uh, so excited that it worked out for you, of course. That's what I'm missing from my inner life. I just need to bring my wife and my two kids so they can just all kind of huddle around me <laughs> as I play IRL. There's the secret to IRL success for Dan. <laughs> of course. Well, once I was in, in day two, you know, it gets a lot more relaxing. So my round six, I was a little less focused. But my opponent, uh, Teresa, um, which had a pretty strong deck, uh, with uh, it had a restoring Gantus in it, and two Barrister Joyas, and a bunch of other crazy uh, disc stuff. And she's the only one of my opponents that has made zero misplays that I noticed. I also played her in day two, 
and she has I she had made no mistakes in that game either that I could notice. And uh, in, the, in the in the round six game, she actually managed to almost lock me out completely of the game with the uh, wrestling guntes. I, I was holding uh, four Mars cards. And she basically time walked me like three, three turns until I managed to get rid of it. Yeah, it was just a steamroll. I'm I'm glad I was already in day two at that point because I had no chance. <laughs> it's the worst feeling. I've I've written uh, an, an, uh, an article about how to play against Control the Weak and Restrigantes, but not knowing that they have it in their deck <laughs> makes it really hard to play against. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely, especially in the sealed, yeah, because you're not seeing the Archon card ahead of time, so you just, you don't know it's there. Um, yeah, and there's just times, too, where, like, you can try to be playing against it, but sometimes you just accidentally clump some cards together, and all of a sudden you have, like, two houses on board, but one of them only has one creature, and all of a sudden, yeah, just bad things happen. As much as you can do to play around it, sometimes you just get smacked by it anyways. So that's interesting, uh, and I think a good transition to... to how things went on day two. And I'm interested to hear what your uh, expectations were going in. Um, and then I'll be in, when it gets to that point, you mentioned you played the same opponent day one and day two. Do you think that knowledge of that first matchup uh, helped you in that second game? Uh, well, I played uh, Theresa in the top eight. So I played Rachel Trimble first in top 16. So I'll talk about that a little first. It was only actually in this game that I realized completely uh, where the strength of my deck lies. Uh, because uh, the previous days, I was like just using what I had at the, at the tactical level in order to win. Because since it's sealed and you don't get to like really know your deck and how it works, you don't get to strategize long term as much. I mean, sure, I know that I have my amber control and I need to get to it if I want to stop a key, but it, I don't like set up anything long term or understand how the deck works in order to capitalize on it. I just start to understand the different uh, workings of the deck, but not deeply. And uh, Rachel Trimble uh, talks out loud while she plays. So uh, there was one turn specifically where I had like six creatures out. And they were all extremely powerful, annoying creatures. There was uh, a Dusk Witch, uh, Collector Worm, uh, Silmarrows, uh, Teliga, stuff like that, all on the board. And she was like, okay, I can kill maybe three of those. And I need to kill all six because they are all stopping me from winning. <laughs> and that's when I realized that that's the strength of the deck. It just has a really high amount of creatures that you have to deal with. Like, you know, how they say an Ember Imp or a Witch of the Eye, you have to kill it immediately. That's like half the creatures in my deck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the game actually ended with Hill misplaying. So almost all the games except Theresa, all the games except Theresa, uh, I have won because of opponent misplays. She um, looked at the over discard pile, and then a turn later, she played Soldiers to Flowers, which is just one amber, and uh, each player purges all untamed creatures from their discard pile and gains one amber for each creature purged this way. And she played it and completely forgot that I'm playing untamed as well, and I actually had seven untamed creatures in my discard pile, <laughs> and I got a huge boost of amber. <laughs> I was actually on five, so she made me forged, and I have enough uh, amber for my third key. Did you, did you have the key charge as well? Did you really get a... No, no, I didn't need that though. Because she was on one key and she only got five for it, So she wasn't even on check. Rough. Oh man, that's a pretty pretty rough misplay there. Uh, yeah, but, but everything else she did was like high quality plays. Like how she manipulated the board and killing my creatures. Uh, she did that extremely well. She didn't leave anything you know, bad attacks or something like that. Everything was very well planned. And aside from that misplay, we were pretty equal. Yeah, and I mean, for those at home who maybe don't know, Rachel Trimble is a Vault Tour champion herself. So this is uh, not at all to disparage the player. I think it just goes to show that, like, Keyforge, especially when playing 
with unfamiliar decks, while it might seem at times to be a pretty straightforward, simple game in terms of interactions, like the bandwidth that it puts on your brain to keep everything straight at once, like even at the top level, the best players in the world can make mistakes. Definitely. She might not have had a, a lot of experience playing with Soldiers to Flowers before the event and just, you know, played it uh, most of the event and it, uh, against opponents that didn't have, have Untamed. So she just didn't quite internalize that it's symmetrical. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so rough. <laughs> so you're on to the top eight. I'm on to the top eight. I'm playing against Teresa again, which I have played against her before. And honestly, I come in expecting to lose. Uh, her deck is extremely powerful, like I said, and she had a lot of tools to deal with, with my stuff, like uh, three fates to clear my board and uh, other and lots of taunts and preventing me from getting to her barrister joyas, two of them, and Albed the Grim and stuff like that. And I just had to do the best as I could, and it just played out well for me. I, I'm not... I'm not exactly, I, I didn't do anything special uh, in preparation. I just took whatever plays I could and and I won. I I just managed to get through the barristers and generate enough amber uh, from cards in order to uh, to fold my, 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 all my keys. Uh, and that was, that was pretty much it. I, I, I did keep in mind that she has Listling Guntus, but I didn't I don't think it ever came up that I made one play over another just because I knew that she has it. I think she also played it pretty early, so it just got out of her way. Nice top four. The top four. Top four. What an accomplishment. Uh at this point I was just extremely happy and nothing could go badly from here. Because I made top four. Top four out of 120-something uh, feels pretty good. Uh, I played... <laughs> I played against uh, Mark, who is the eventual Voltour champion Spoilers. for the field. And, <laughs> yeah. And he... <laughs> so I'm guessing it didn't go good for you. No, it did not. He decimated <laughs> me. He had an insane deck with like two brands and two life for a life and Basically, a constructed deck. He, he actually even took that deck to the uh, Archon's, Archon event the following day and went 4-2 with it. Wow. Yeah. It was that good. Well, that is a, a, an impressive run. Absolutely amazing accomplishment. Congrats also again, once again, to Flibber for making it to the finals and then being the eventual loser. So two sanctimonious people falling to Mark there in the top four. But well done to be there. So before we jump over to the Archons, I think, is there, was there any like like key takeaways, like a lesson learned that you'd want to share after that? Um, I think that playing in Sealed is a lot about knowing the entire card pool and also actually having played with a large variety of cards. Uh, just like Rachel Tibble might not have played with Soldiers uh, to Flowers a lot and knew how it interacted with the game, uh, like internalized how it works, uh, stuff like that really puts you at an advantage or disadvantage while playing in Sealed. Uh, I had quite a bit of practice, um, and I think I was familiar with all the cards that I had in my deck, and I have played with them before, and that is something important and just playing well and not making any you know critical misplays is key to winning in sealed knowing the cards and playing well uh other than that there isn't much to it you just practice know the cards and play well if you're ready um you want to jump over onto the archon side of things all right so before we talk about how the event actually went uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your process for selecting your decks. I think I recall from just the Discord that it was actually a fairly late in the game change that you decided to play the deck that you did. Yeah, it was it was less of a you know 
a choice between decks that I had and I picked one. It's more that I just opened it about three weeks before the Vault Tour and saw it and said, well, well, this is one I want to play. Um, before choosing this deck, I had another option. Uh, I'm not sure it would have done as well. Um, Archon is pretty cutthroat. But eventually, I, I did open a deck that I really liked. I also scoured the internet in search for a deck that I really liked uh, on the secondary market, but I didn't find one uh, that had like a good ratio between price and how much I liked it. But this one, I opened it, and uh, I actually opened it while um, practicing for Voltor Sealed. I uh, opened three decks. My my uh, significant other opened three decks, and then we picked one and started to play a best of three. So I played this deck, and she actually beat me uh, two to one. <laughs> I lost two of my games because I had no idea how to play a gen a Jenka deck. Uh, for those who don't know, Jenka is uh, short for gen uh, Mars and Generosity Key Abduction combo, which is uh, the, you play the Mars and Generosity. Hopefully, with at least four amber in your pool, you get another one from the Martian Generosity. Then you lose all your amber and draw two cards uh, per amber loss. So that's uh, 10 cards. You started your uh, turn with five in your hand. Besides the Martian Generosity, you draw 10 more. Hopefully, there's a key abduction in there. And then you play it and forge for free since you have uh, 14 cards in your hand left and another one amber from the key. And that's that's a free key. Uh, so that's the basic combo for the deck. Uh, but it has a lot more in it than um, than just just that because it has a ground buggy, uh, which uh, usually is uh, is it it can be rough against some matchups because it, it's symmetrical. But in this deck, because it's a Martian Generosity Key Abduction deck, uh, the symmetrical uh, effect is actually beneficial because Grump Buggy will increase the cost of my keys, and therefore I can have more than five amber in my pool in the beginning of my turn and draw even more cards with Martian Generosity and have an even bigger chance of getting the key abduction and setting up. Uh, an insurmountable board that my opponent cannot get over. Uh, other than that, the deck also has two recursion cards uh, in Glimmer and a Penseed, and also two Song of Springs to shuffle the Glimmer back into my deck to make sure that I always have that recursion. So my winning position is I'm holding most of my deck in my hand, and I play my mouse, and then if they are if they are not dealt with, I just keep reaping and using my mouse board. If they, it is dealt with, I can play Glimmer to get back my Martian Generosity, Song of Spring to shuffle it back into my deck, and basically reset up that entire play again the next turn. Sounds pretty strong. Yeah, I know Dan has been championing that combo specifically since since he first laid eyes on it. Uh, so you're actually one of the first to put up significant results with it. So I'm actually kind of annoyed because that proves his point right, which, of course, makes me <laughs> slightly upset. Uh, well, this, this deck is quite special. There were quite a few uh, Jenka decks in uh, in day one, and I, I'm not sure if I'm the only one. I think I'm the only one that made it to top 16. So it's not the, the, the combo on its own, having Martian Generosity and Key Abduction in your deck is not enough to win. You have to have either uh, the consistency to get it out, which this deck does have, because it also has uh, Sound the Horns uh, to dig through the deck, and then you can recur the Martian Generosity. Um, or it needs to be able to run a consistent game plan regardless of the Martian Generosity Key Abduction. And that's not always the case with this combo. All right. Um, well, why don't you give us the highlights from the first day of the competition? So technically, this is day number three for you. You've already been playing Keyforge for two days straight, uh, but the first day of the Archon side of the Vault Tour. Yeah, and I'm definitely tired here. 
um, I'm sleeping at a, at a bread and breakfast type place, apartment, and crappy bed, and I'm exhausted, and it shows in my first game as I'm completely out of focus, and I just barely squeeze out a win uh, after my opponent plays a Merkins into my destroy them all to kill my grump buggy. Uh, and yeah, and he had no artifact control in in the in his deck. So that was that was literally the only artifact control in the game, and it came off the top of my deck with the Merkins. Uh, but I managed to get back into that game, luckily. Um, I went on to win five one in uh, uh, five five my first five rounds in the Archon as well, and. Um, I think that those games were all generally in my favor in terms of matchup. I played only against Call of the Archon decks, and Call of the Archon decks don't generally have a way to deal with a large board, aside from board clearing with something like uh, Gateway to This. Uh, they don't really generate a board and don't fight a board. They can't take advantage of my gum buggy. Uh, so that was a definite matchup advantage during this game. Um, so that brings up, that uh, raised the question. Is it, was there like a specific archetype or a deck that you were hoping to avoid, like that you found out to be challenging in your testing? Um, so uh, playing against Amber Rush of any kind is a bit high variance because if I get my Grump buggy out early enough, I can stall them long enough to get my combo off and win. If I don't get the Grump buggy, I'm pretty much out of luck. So it's not that I was trying to uh, hoping to avoid those matchups, but I knew that the more of those matchups that I had to play against, the higher chance that I will low roll and lose. I guess, but I guess that knowledge also helps you with decisions for mulliganing and all of that. So, good to have that in your back pocket. Definitely, yeah. If if I notice I'm playing against a rush deck, then I can hard mulligan for the ground buggy, and just hope to get it out early. Um, also, play faster. Uh, use as many cards as I can to dig through my deck faster in order to get it. Uh, my round six game actually was against an amber rush deck. That didn't look like an Amber Rush deck. Uh, it had uh, three Virtuous Walks and Shadows and, and this, I believe, and it just generates Amber quickly. And it doesn't it doesn't have Untamed, so it didn't look like one to me. And I didn't play optimally against the Rush deck in that round. Uh, I also noticed that when I'm playing. On the sixth round, when I'm already 5-0, I lose focus. And because I'm tired, I'm not thinking 100%, and I'm not focused, and there's no adrenaline in the body in order to make me like super focused and just play the game right. So I might have made some mistakes there that I'm not aware of. It makes sense, though. Like, right, you get that all that stress in that round four, or sorry, the round five matchup, and then the release yeah, <laughs> when you definitely. get the win. Uh, so certainly understandable uh, to and after all those games to make a, a mistake or two. I think you should you should uh, be able to forgive yourself for those. Yeah, I'm 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 pretty okay <laughs> with losing my sixth round after, after <laughs> I'm already in top sixteen. Uh, I also played my fourth game on stream, which was a very nice experience. Uh, I wasn't nervous playing on stream, but it did make me super aware about my mistakes after I've made them. Uh, just you know. Uh, knowing that everybody's watching and will be able to criticize my plays was like, ah, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> this is like a, a side question. I apologize if this if this is going to run a little long. I'm sure the people who listen to the podcast don't care. But so I, I think you mentioned you did go back and watch the stream. Yeah. Is there anything that you like picked up on from analyzing your own play after the fact where you were like, why did I make this decision? I should have done something else. Just being like sort of removed from the context of like being in the event. Okay, so I think um, 
that it was very uh, interesting to watch my own game. Uh, I didn't make any uh, bad play decisions during the game. My only mistakes during the game were um, to do with small upkeep stuff, like allowing my opponent to talk, to attack past the taunt and forgetting to put a plus one counter on um, on a creature next to a growth keeper, stuff like that. Mm, uh, sure. I also noticed that like uh, I didn't completely think it through. Uh, when I played my entire Mars hand, I started putting my creatures down, and then midway I realized that I don't want them in that order, so I started placing them on the other side. So, uh, because he had he had a Lord Golgotha that could have attacked into my uh, Dominator and killed both uh, the three three creatures on the side, so I so I stopped and I was like, okay, these go to the other side. I usually want them on one side uh, because of the Harvester wants as many uh, right. mouse neighbors as it can be. All right, so let's move on to day two. So you start out in top sixteen again. Is that the first round? Yeah. We had exactly 16 players. Uh, how did that match go? Well, uh, I knew uh, what deck I'm going to play against uh, the day before. So I had some time to do some uh, research. And it was a, a Brobner Untamed Shadows deck. Very similar to my second choice to take the Voltour. So I was sort of familiar with how that would play out. And I made the decision to not generate Amber so he couldn't steal it before I had the ground buggy out. And then I generated Amber before having the ground buggy out and it just made him go faster and I was just not able to get my ground buggy before he was already on two keys and then he just had enough Amber to forge with the ground buggy out. And that was pretty anticlimactic to the entire event. <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean... I'm just, I know you would have loved to do better and we were all cheering for you, but like what an incredible run to, you know, absolutely, I think, like demonstrate your abilities to the whole world. I mean, it's like, a, it's not an accident, you know, maybe somebody can open a good sealed deck and get to top 16, but like to make day two twice the same weekend is no fluke at all. And I mean, all of us uh, in the Sanctimonious Discord, all the people who are helping uh to train and learn about the game together like it's so obvious how much work and effort you put into preparing for these events so i'm just thrilled for you uh for the accomplishment and that all that hard work paid off in such a big way thank you uh i was really happy with that result i was actually expecting to go 4-2 on the alcon because uh i actually played uh sealed volto in uh ukge in birmingham and I went for two there, so I felt like I learned from that and could do better. Uh, but I've never played in an Alcon Volto before, and I was expecting to go for two as well here, uh, and having to play another one in order to make day two. So I was very happy with making top sixteen. Well, before I let you go, uh, do you have time to maybe answer a couple of just discussion questions? I have plenty of time. Great, because I am dying to know. And I, and I think this will be really interesting to people listening to this podcast as well. So you're sort of famous in the Sanctimonious Discard just for your, like, your dedication to preparation. I know you've played your Archon choice at least 100 times before taking to the event. Um, and then have also been known to wake up at all hours in the morning to uh, get in on sealed bidding events and stuff like that. Uh so I'm curious, in your opinion, do you think that tournament preparation is more important when preparing for an Archon event or a sealed event? I actually think it's about the same. Um, but the preparation is different. Uh, in order to, play, to prepare for uh, sealed, you want to play with a lot of different decks. You want to be able to play with decks that contain cards of a large variety, play all the houses, uh, familiarize yourself with all the cards in the set, and um, just just play a lot of, of variants. And obviously, if you get the opportunity to uh, assess decks, that's also helpful. For Alcon, you need to play the same deck a lot. And that's a completely different um, 
form of preparation because what you get from it is less knowing how to play with a large variety of cards, but more really familiarize yourself with how specific interactions in your deck work. And that's different. But preparation for both is very important. And I think that people prepare less for sealed than they do for Archon, as is probably evident from more mistakes being made in, in the sealed uh, Voltors. So I am, as of recording this, uh, I guess by the time people hear this, I'll have already played in the Vault Tour. Uh, my first Archon Vault Tour, which is coming up this weekend. So I'm like in the midst of preparing for that. Um, and I've tried to take your advice and I've, you know, selected a deck pretty early on, uh, stuck with it, even though I was tempted to change a few times throughout. And I sadly haven't been able to get it to 100 plays, but I'm, you know, quickly approaching 50 um, or maybe just past 50. And I've been surprised by how much I've learned about the deck. Uh, prior to this preparation, I'm in, in the middle of now, I'd never played a deck really more than a dozen times max, just because I really enjoy uh, playing new decks, exploring them. Like I'd always take a different deck to a local uh, chain-bound event just for fun, just because that's how I find a lot of joy. But I've been surprised how much I've enjoyed the process and how much I've learned about my deck. So my question for you is, what did you learn about your deck after like play 50 like is there something you felt like more comfortable with or some aspect of it that you were more comfortable with after 100 plays than you were at 50 or perhaps like even you know i don't know maybe you could talk about like those like benchmarks for how you're familiarizing yourself with the deck uh definitely um i think that uh, the 20 games mark uh you start knowing how your deck operates on a deeper level and you basically start to identify long-term strategic play and are easier. it is easier for you to find your outs when you need them. Uh, at the 50 games mark, you start to recognize uh, repeat situations and that allows you to um, go back to decisions that you've already made and, instead of making them again uh for example when i'm playing my uh my uh, uh Genka deck i know that i want to keep my uh mighty tiger on a flank because if i play later a grove keeper next to it it can become a five power creature for my ground buggy and that's something that i I only found out while I playing the game lots of times that I might want an additional five power creature in order to keep my opponent uh, off key. That's just an example. There are lots of small things about my creature placement, about the order I playing cards that I learned at that point of the mark. I actually only learned something about my deck during the Vault Tour while playing a warm up game before my day two. I played against uh, uh, James. Uh, he was playing his uh, uh, sealed victory deck. And we played the game, and only during that game, I realized that endless cycle I can do with the Glimmer, recurring it, Martian Generosity again, play the Martian Generosity, get the Glimmer again, and then go back to Untamed. That back and forth, I only realized fully that i can do that indefinitely in that game wow uh so this is this is something obviously not all decks have like some decks are just you know they're straightforward you play the cards and you generate the amber and you win some decks though are provide very big situations and very long-term decision making that you only learn after playing it lots and I'm sure uh, that uh, Dan Koro, uh, Jakub, has played Pink Fraud 500 times and knows all the order of operations he can do in order to get uh, a good library access turn or a good uh, Battlefield key production turn. That's a really fantastic answer to that question. It's really helpful uh, to me. So hopefully other people also will find some value in that. 
Um, so this is more, I just have a couple more questions for you. And this is more just coming a little bit away from the strategy, which uh, you've been very gracious with providing this information to anybody on your blog one more time. So please do check that out. Uh, that's sort of where I've gained a lot of knowledge about the game. Um, so I really recommend anyone listening to this does go check that out. Uh, so we'll move a little bit away from that strategy and to just a little bit more opinion uh, questions. So this has been a little bit of a hot button issue lately where people talking about sort of the cost and accessibility of Archon Keyforge. And especially uh, it gets, I guess, that problem gets more exacerbated in triad formats where you need three decks and so on and so forth. So I'm just curious. Um, I know you said you opened your deck after scouring the internet looking for one for a good value. Do you believe uh, that Archon is currently uh, accessible at the price point to be able to compete? Or uh, do you think you do need to spend some considerable amount of money to really find that Voltor quality deck? Uh, that's a good question and a tough one. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I Let's say I opened roughly 100 decks, roughly, uh, during my uh, one year-ish in Keyforge. Uh, of those hundred decks, I think I opened maybe three that I can take to a Volto. So that's the rough rough amount I think uh, for you to open three decks that you can take to the to, to a Volto. So uh, that price point, if you get your boxes at a, at a significant uh, discount, which you can. Uh, would be around uh, $600 for the entire collection. And that's not accounting being able to sell some of those on the second mar- secondary market to recover, recoup some costs. Um, if you take that sum of money and instead of buying closed decks, you just go on the secondary market and buy three decks, you should have three decks that are Voltu viable. Um, and I think for a collectible guard game, hobby type thing, similar to other games, this is fairly cheap. And therefore I think it's fairly accessible. Um, I can't can't fault the logic there at all. Uh, I do completely agree uh, that like, especially when you bring in the comparison for what it's like to play other games that are just like so much more expensive um that it really does kind of point out the strong positives we have with Keyforge but on the other hand i think just like the fact that you can't go out and you know build the exact copy of whatever deck won the Voltor you won't be able to find that exact same deck uh and probably the ones that are most similar to it are going to be a little bit more expensive after something like that happens um I think that maybe just like fuels people's fear a little bit about like, you know, just the fact that a deck won a vault tour, like, mu- like puts it on a pedestal. Like this is truly special and, you know, one in one in a million rather than, you know, one in roughly 33 or how, or what have you. Yeah. I mean, sure. Like, uh, there are, there are decks that have proven to be good enough to win a vault tour. Uh, some of them, though, aren't that special. Like, there are many of them. And at, at least the ones that make two, day two are, are in abundance. Like, the, the deck that I played against in, the, in my top 16 of the Alcon, you can find lots of those. And I also played against lots of decks during my day one that could have easily made day two uh, with different matchups or better play. So I, I definitely think there are a lot more viable decks than 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 it seems. Well, thank you uh, for sharing your opinion. I think you make a lot of great points. So I have one more question for you. And this is one I asked uh, Alex Slotnick when I was fortunate enough to have him on the show as well, which is after that experience, you've done now three vault tours. If you could make one change to the format, whether it's the on the sealed side or the Archon side, uh, what would you suggest to FFG, or what would you put into place if you could? Well, uh, can I have one for each? 
Sure, yes, that'd be fantastic. Okay, so I think that the game has two types of uh, variants in it, in a, to- in a tournament. Uh, you have uh, game variants, which is basically you can draw poorly or not get the answers that you need, or draw highly and just have everything that you need uh, and early. Uh, and that's the, that's the gameplay variance. And your opponent d- does the same, of course. You can low roll or high roll. And the other variance is the matchup variance, um, which is basically if you're facing a deck that is really, really good against yours, or you're facing a deck that is just significantly more powerful than yours, uh, that's the other type of variance. Now, in my opinion, um, the matchup variance is a lot critical in Sealed because somebody like Mark can open a deck that is just beyond the realm of everything else in, in the Sealed tournament and just make make it with no loss all the way to the top. And that kind of variance is best mitigated with a uh, double em- elimination top cut because it means that uh, being uh, facing the top deck in your top 16 game uh, doesn't mean you're ex- knocked out. For example, I played against Mark in my top four. Uh, a friend played against Mark in uh, the top 16 and James played Mark in the finals. So we each lost to Mark, but because we did it in a different time, we ranked differently. I don't think there was any deck in the top 16 that could have beaten Mark. So it is best to have a double elimination so everybody else can compete compete with each other for that second place slot. Uh, In uh, Archon, on the other hand, the high-low variance is much more significant. People are bringing very, very good decks to those tournaments. So uh, you generally expect decks to be able to perform against a large variety of decks. Sure, sometimes you're playing against a deck that just has all the answers to yours and you have no chance. But that is a, relate, a relatively uh, small uh, chance of happening, especially if you read the meta correctly. And in this kind of variance, the best way to mitigate it is playing a best of three. Because in a best of three, uh, no deck is gonna high roll, you know, three t- three times and have no answers from the other deck, unless it's just, you know, the bad the mad, bad matchup. Uh, you can see in the the finals in Nuremberg where uh, uh, Jakob Dankuro uh, beat uh, Vince. Uh, Vince won the first game, and he won the first game because he high rolled, and uh, Pink Ford is just a significantly uh, stronger deck played by a stronger player, and uh, it just it just had the answers in the correct order and won that uh, tournament based on being you know player plus deck combo that is just stronger. And it needed the best of three match in order to do that because uh, uh, the, the other deck high rolled in the first game. Uh, I also got knocked out at top 16 because of my opponent high rolling and my deck low rolling. So I think if we could have a best of three in the entire top 16, that would be significantly better. I think you make some really compelling points in both cases. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute joy for me to talk with you. Uh, You're so well-spoken about the game and so knowledgeable about it. I really hope that everyone listening to this podcast uh, gets just as much value out of it as I did. Uh, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share uh, before we go our separate ways? No, I think we, I've, we've talked enough. <laughs> Thanks again. Um, are you on, do you want to let people know where they can find you online? Yeah, definitely. So um, my blog can be found in, uh, on uh, timeshapers.com. Uh, on Twitter, you can find me at material poetic and you can always find me in the discord so i'll take dan space and come to the discord it's awesome <laughs> well y'all know me i'm jake friedman yeah you can find me on twitter at jake Fried, j-a-k-e-f-r-y-d this has been another episode of sanctimonious thanks for joining us and we'll see you again next week
Thank you very much. Archons of the Crucible, thank you for joining us at VT Collinsville and joining us in the round table. Thank you for all your brother and sisterhood as we join together under the arch and reign supreme, I hope, in forging those keys.